This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue or two from my comic book collection, which I will usually select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 80th episode of The Quarter Bin, we're looking at JLX from Amalgam Comics, covered it in April 1996, and JLX Unleashed, also from Amalgam Comics, covered it in June 1997. A few months ago, I decided to revisit the Amalgam books here on The Quarter Bin. If you are new to the show, on episode 54, the late Sean Engel and I covered Dr. Strange Fate, and on episode 55, Trennis Magnus and I looked at Challengers of the Fantastic. I wanted to do two more episodes and pretty much wrap up Amalgam as far as the Quarterbin goes. The problem was that I had five Amalgam books and two episodes to cover them on, and I didn't need the pressure myself of deciding which ones to cover, so I passed that on to you, lovely listeners. Through Facebook, people were allowed to pick the two books I'd cover, and then through the wonder of the XL randomizer, the selections by Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog were the winners. Which brings us to JLX. I just added JLX to Unleashed sort of as bonus content. And we'll get to those books soon. But first, we have a little feedback. Bradley Null summed up the reaction that many people had to the Assassin's book that was covered in episode 78. Love me some amalgam, but the violence and name-dropping sans plot of this one makes it my least favorite, to which I simply replied, same wavelength, buddy. We are on the same wavelength. In terms of feelings about episode 78 and Assassins, the outlier was Manuel Carmona, the man behind Truthful comics. I don't know what this says about my tastes, other than I love the 90s era in comics, but I actually really like this book. It could be because I'm a huge Scott McDaniel fan, though. No problem with that, Manuel. No shame. Taste is taste. We gladly and gleefully judge the books that we read, but we do not judge other listeners or their tastes. Except Shag. I mean, come on. That goes without saying. And Greg Arujo's comments on last episode, Doom 2099, again, I think, sums up everyone's thoughts. Doom is pleased. I sure hope so. I also wanted to give David Foster a shout-out. I don't know if he's a new listener, but he's a new member of the Relatively Geeky Facebook page and a pretty new commenter over there. So thank you, David. Welcome. Glad to have you around. I also wanted to talk briefly about my and Emily's experiences at Baltimore Comic-Con over Labor Day weekend. We may talk about the con elsewhere, but I wanted to specifically talk about the quarter bin related aspects of the con. Back on episode 45 of this show, we covered Thor 
364, one of the Frog Thor episodes, written and drawn by Walt Simonson, who was at the con. I took this book along with a few others for Mr. Simonson's signature. But every time I swung by his table, either he wasn't there or they had cut off his line for that window of time, that window of opportunity. So he's one of the few guys on my list who I didn't get to. Episode 50 was Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Now, I already had a copy of that issue signed by Bart Sears, who was there, by the way. So I didn't need to visit his table. But if you remember, also on that episode, as a guest, was the great podcaster Tom Panarese from In Country and Pop Culture Affidavit. I crossed paths with Tom more than once at the con, who was there with one of his sons. He was having a great time, too. The four of us, the two Panarises and the two Middletons, hung out at lunch at Chipotle, had a nice chat about what we had gotten signed so far and what our afternoons looked like. It was a nice break from all the walking and standing, in addition to the good company. One of the highlights for me of the con is related to Quarterbin 62, our Veterans Day episode last year, where we covered Blackhawk 112. In addition to getting some other Blackhawk material signed by Howard Chaikin, there was a terrific Blackhawk cosplayer. This was a guy who was a bit older than me, who had the look not just of a veteran, but of a military retiree. You know that look. And the costume, the uniform, I should say, more correctly, was terrific. It was spot on. I took a few pictures at the con, but that was the only cosplayer that I had my picture taken with. I've put that on my Facebook page, and also on the Facebook page for the Action Comics Weekly Show, where I've had some conversations with the host, Chad Bokelman, about Blackhawk. The last ones are not perfectly related to the quarter bin, but I did mention Howard Shaken, and he did a cover of Doom 2099, issue 34, that I had him sign. Sadly, we won't be covering that issue here, but it was Doom, and from what I understand, he really gets a kick when he's mentioned on the show. Also, my buddy Tom Zoller was showing there. When I wandered by his table, he was signing a lot of the My Little Pony books that he's drawn, and he's written a couple of those stories also. I met Tom last year when Shag came to visit. Whoa, I've mentioned that guy twice already. I have got to be careful. Well, anyway, bought a copy of the first trade of Tom's Love and Capes book, which before he signed it for me, he wanted to make perfectly clear that the book was more than 25 cents. Because evidently, he remembered my reputation and brand identity. For more Baltimore Comic Con talk, like I said, that will probably occur in another venue, another show, somewhere along the way. But let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we come back, we are revisiting the Amalgamverse. And we're going to talk about JLX. I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, 
as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. And we're back. JLX, or technically JLX number one, had a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this book at a solid 87% markdown. The cover, by Howard Porter, shows a winged-footed Aquaman-type dude at the center of the page, holding a pretty cool battle axe thing. There are a couple of X-looking folk around him, and a fire-looking lady, and kind of a creeper dude, who also looks a bit like Nightcrawler. The story, A League of Their Own, was written by Gerard Jones and Mark Wade, which, I'll be honest, does kind of raise my expectations. The issue was penciled by Howard Porter and inked by John Dell. We open, over the waters of the North Atlantic. The storming of an angry ocean is nothing against the storm in the hearts of seven heroes. These are Goliath, Clint Archer, Canary, Darkclaw, Super Soldier, Angel Hawk, and Captain Marvel. The last one to clarify is an amalgam of Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel. For the Judgment League Avengers have never fought so painful a battle as this one. Then we get a huge two-page splash of these guys fighting their former teammates, I guess. Mariner, who is the combo of Aquaman and Namor, proclaims that as the king of Atlantis and first among mutants, he will not allow others to fight his battles. I am the reason you've turned against your friends, and I will defend this JLX. The combo of the Ray and Cyclops, called Apollo, comments that the others can't understand his choices because they've never lived life as a mutant. We've given up trying to make you see why this must be done. Now we can only do what we must. S.H.I.E.L.D. is after Mariner because they believe he was responsible for torching some Roxxon oil tankers. But we learn that Will Magnus has framed him. After he is captured by S.H.I.E.L.D., the mysterious Mr. X assembles a team to free their fellow Metamutant. He communicates to the team telepathically, and we don't see him, not at this point in the story, but like a searchlight through clouds, like a knife through tissue, the mind of Mr. X penetrates. And he finds the memory of the Serpent Crown, and Mariner can read the encoded clues on the ancient item to find the location of Atlantis, the purported origin of all mutant kind. The team of Apollo, Runaway, Night Creeper, Firebird, Mariner, Wraith, and Mercury head into the depths of the ocean. They fight through the increase of water pressure to find the dome, and they blast into the sheltered city. There is air here, but that air is still and silent as a tomb. Mariner is pretty upset by this, and rants about how the surface dwellers have done this, poisoning my oceans, driving my people away. Then Will Magnus arrives with his sentinels and Jocasta, and he has the serpent crown. And then, of course, a battle ensues in the ocean, which is actually pretty cool. And Jocasta is destroyed, causing Magnus, who is a combo of Magnus, and Bolivar Trask, to monologue some important information. Lovely Jocasta, 
another joy in my life, torn from me by them. Mutants have made my life a torment since my brother first manifested the powers that made him Magneto. He orders the Sentinels to bring down the towers of the city, and Mr. X must reveal his true form, green skin, strange-looking skull, and a costume that shows off all of his muscles. And he speaks. Stop. The city and its dome have been damaged. If we're to find any trace of the vanished Atlantean's trail, it must be now. Firebird asks him the obvious question of just who the bleepity bleep he is anyway. And Mr. X reveals his true identity, that of Jean Johns, the last survivor of the Martian race known as the Skrulls. He's been hiding with the aid of his shape-shifting powers, and when he learned of the existence of mutants, he thought he may have finally found a home, found a people. And on the last page, the JLX decides to remain together. Somewhere in the city, there must rest the secret of why the Atlanteans departed. Follow me, and I will do all I can to help you find them. Mariner grudgingly accepts this proposal. We're with you, Johns, or X, or whatever you want to be called. We're with you. For now. The end. So as my internet buddy and a real nice guy, Trennis Magnus, would ask, what did I think of this? The first thing you need to consider in judging an amalgam book is to judge the amalgams, and there are some pretty good ones here. To be fair, there are a ton of them, so some of them had better be good. I have to start with Night Creeper. I'm not a Nightcrawler fan much, but I do kind of like the Creeper. I've got to admit that as crazy as that costume is, I've always kind of liked the guy. Visually, this amalgam takes the Creeper color scheme, but also does a good job of blending in aspects of Nightcrawler. It really is a pretty nice look. Angel Hawk looked cool. It's a combo of Angel and Hawkman. And it's a pretty obvious combo, but again, it works pretty well. Canary was basically Black Canary with her mask shaped like Mockingbirds. What I liked about a lot of these costumes is that they used one of the characters clearly as the jumping off point with not too much of the second character. And that worked for a lot of them like Firebird, a nice mix of Phoenix and Fire with a great green costume. But my favorite character here, not just in look, but in attitude, is Mariner. Again, for the look, it's mostly Aquaman. He has Namor's winged feet, but most importantly, he has Namor's attitude. That's what I think they got right a lot, was not just the looks of the characters, but the attitude of one of the characters. In terms of the story, there was a lot of fighty-fight, and of course, with no context for the created backstory of these characters, I was not exactly sure who was on which team when we started, who was whose ally who was trying to capture who, Everyone wore costumes, but they weren't exactly uniforms signifying what team they were on. So I struggled a bit with that. But then I remember that there really isn't any actual continuity here. So that's not really all that important in the long run. I liked the sense, though, that this was a big or important issue. Again, in terms of there not really being any past or future for this. But despite that, this idea of the Serpent Crown and the location of Atlantis, 
that gives the plot a real sense of import. There's a sense that this could be issue two of a six-part multi-title crossover of some kind. And that's how it delivers that real sense of fun, of adventure. I've talked about how I want a sense of fun from my amalgam books, and that doesn't have to mean funny, although some of the best amalgams have a sense of lightness, a sense of humor. JLX does not have a lot of jokes, per se. You know, some of the character interactions and quips work as funny, but it still manages to be fun. And the reveal of the super-secret Mr. X as a combo of Professor X and Martian Manhunter, that worked really well for me, and the reveal took me by surprise. Martian Manhunter has so many powers that I like that they focused here on the telepathy, which made him a good combination with Xavier, of course. Because off the top of my head, I wouldn't have thought of those two as natural or, or obvious combinations. Namor and Aquaman, of course. Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel, of course. And I have to say, that was pretty funny, too. But John Jones and Charles Xavier, it's not obvious to me right off the top of my head, but it works. There are certain similarities, and Wade and Jones really make that character work. And making him a scroll, again, another really good idea. That, that aspect of the visual really worked. So this was a fun issue. It's action-packed, and like I said, the stakes are high. I wish there was another opportunity to see some of the characters in action again, maybe with some different teammates or something. Well, that's what I have on JLX. It's time for another break, and when we come back, JLX Unleashed. Hello, everyone. My name is Pat, and I'm the host of a new podcast called The Longbox Crusade. A while back, my wife said to me, Why do you keep buying more comics? I bet you have not even read all the comics you have already. Well, she's right, but let's keep that between you and me. So I took her up on the challenge to read them all. I decided to read my collection of comic books in chronological order by the issue's cover dates. I wanted to relive their adventures and bring back the memories I had of my childhood in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. My collection has been stashed away in over 20-plus long boxes in the basement. I'll leave it up to your imagination as to why I cannot have them on display upstairs. But that's a different story. The Longbox Crusade podcast will be of recaps and reviews of the issues in my collection in a fun and friendly way. You can find the podcast at longboxcrusade.com. I hope you will join me on this crusade to read them all. And we're back again. JLX Unleashed, or technically, JLX Unleashed number one, also had a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this book at a solid, solid, solid 87% price reduction. The cover by Oscar Jimenez and Hannibal Rodriguez shows... I'm going to be honest here. It's a little hard to make out exactly what it shows, Lots of amalgamated figures are flying in and being beaten back by a fiery dragon. But there's really no major central character for the eye to focus on, at least that I could make out. But there's definitely a fiery dragon. I stand by that. The story doesn't appear to have an actual title, but it is listed in the databases as The Unextinguishable Flame. 
which is a phrase that appears in big letters on the second page. So I guess that's okay. The story was written by Christopher Priest, with art by Oscar Jimenez and Hannibal Rodriguez. We open in Senegal, at a shrine that doesn't appear on any tourist map. The Hellfire League of Injustice is in session. Savage Shaw plans to launch a final assault on metamutant kind, but Mistress Maxima believes it's just his obsession with the JLX. Those two are joined by Lord Maxwell Hodge, and the Hellfire League recite an incantation in the name of Mephiston to summon their champion, the ultimate evil, Finn Fang Flame. That's the fiery dragon from the cover. Fiery demonic dragon, as it turns out. This incantation is successful, and after 8,703 years of slumber, the demon dragon is awakened. Shaw commands Fin Fang Flame to eradicate metahumans, and the creature obeys by first destroying the Hellfire League of Injustice. All humanity, after all, is mutated in some way, the dragon reasons. In New York, Super Soldier is putting back into place the Statue of Liberty after Fin Fang Flame all but leveled the city, and the Judgment League Avengers along with it. Amazon informs Super Soldier that JLA International and JLA West were overtaken and suggests releasing the JLX. Captain Marvel disagrees. Mr. X is due to be extradited to the Kree homeworld for trial. These people are not to be trusted. Super Soldier doesn't believe that all metamutants are evil and doesn't necessarily agree with the Armageddon agenda but they are obligated to uphold the law from his perspective. Finn Fang Flame arrives for Amazon. Captain Marvel and Super Soldier do not realize that she is a mutant. Finn Fang Flame admits that until the last metamutant is dead, humanity will suffer. But Amazon manages to drive the dragon back, for now. Less than an hour later, Amazon visits a wheelchair-bound Mr. X in the Metamutant Prison. However, the Green Martian slash Skrull is reluctant to help those who have supported the Armageddon agenda. The legislation that permitted Will Magnus and his Sentinels to declare war on all Metamutants. Amazon persists, stating that if Mr. X continues to be non-active, more Metamutants would end up like his protege Apollo, who is now sitting in a corner completely catatonic. Mr. X finally agrees that he is not doing this for humanity's sake, but to aid their own deliverance. Bruce Wayne and a range of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are attempting to make a stand in Tokyo, trying to save that city from Fin Fang Flame. The dragon has already destroyed the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. NATO has gone to DEFCON 2. They're authorized to nuke Tokyo if necessary. At Aimstar Labs, Mr. X and Amazon release Chaos from Stasis, where he's been held for more than a decade. Though he wishes to gain vengeance on Mr. X for allowing him to be held in Stasis for that long, and for taking his brother Apollo away from him, he decides nonetheless to help them battle Fing Fang Flame first. 
En route, Mr. X debriefs the JLX at this point made up of Runaway, Amazon, Apollo, Chaos, Iceberg, and my favorite from the previous issue, Night Creeper. The plan is simple. Iceberg will freeze Fin Fang Flame so that Night Creeper can teleport inside the dragon and retrieve the Techno Seed, which Mr. X believes is the dragon's power source. Night Creeper, of course, has a problem or two with this part of the plan. So instead of burning to death, I get to freeze to death. Ah, decisions, decisions. The JLX arrive in the middle of the army's attempt to destroy the dragon. Chaos's power begins to build, and he desperately needs to get out of the jet in order to save all the folks who are on the plane with him. So Night Creeper kicks him out. Literally, he kicks him out of the plane. But that's okay, because as Night Creeper explains, he is pretty sure that Chaos can fly. While waiting to do her part in the battle, Runaway becomes preoccupied with what happened to Wraith, and feels that humanity deserves at least a bit of what Flame is dishing out. Because of this distraction, Iceberg isn't able to get near enough to Fin Fang Flame to freeze him, and she is knocked unconscious. The plan is coming apart. But Runaway absorbs Iceberg's powers and continues the fight. Meanwhile, while Apollo remains in the jet, Mr. X psychically attacks Flame, which the dragon does not like one bit. But eventually, Mr. X is knocked out. He is saved by Chaos's powerful blast. However, his G-force is too strong to break his trajectory, and he is swallowed whole by Fin Fang Flame. Runaway, having absorbed Iceberg's power, does manage to freeze the dragon, and Night Creeper teleports in to retrieve the Techno Seed. The artifact is destroyed, and the dragon is knocked unconscious. However, Chaos is still trapped inside, Assuming that the monster is dead, and you know what happens when you assume. They start to retrieve chaos, but Thin Fang Flame reawakens. Just in time, Apollo crashes the jet into the creature and uses his power to absorb solar radiation to draw all the power out of Thin Fang Flame. Fang's power is magic-based. How could Apollo do what he did and still be human? I never was, he reveals on the last page. And he has absorbed so much energy that he is mutated even further than he had already been mutated into a bright glowing energy being. Amazon joins the victorious JLX and they skedaddle before they end up being put back into prison. The end. So as my internet buddy and podcasting colleague, Trentus Magnus, would ask, what did I think of this? I thought this was really good. I love that here in the second wave of Amalgam, they specifically picked up plot points and bits of character and story continuity and told a story that was consistent with the world of JLX that they had previously established. This is a year later. I'm sure they... Didn't know that there would eventually be a wave two, but Christopher Priest pulled in enough of what Mark Wade and Gerard Jones had done, as well as what had occurred in the rest of the Amalgam Reverse, that this story, for being what it was, actually made sense. 
Again, there are a ton of amalgams on display here, and some of them are excellent. I liked the Hellfire League of Injustice, for example. Especially the name. And of course, Fin Fang Flame, based on Fin Fang Foom, with some key elements of DC's Brimstone thrown in for good measure, including the Techno Seed. But what a great villain. They've given him these powers on a cosmic scale, and he was legitimately hard to defeat. It's the type of threat that necessitates a Justice League or X-Men level response. And we had another appearance by Night Creeper. And this time he's a little wackier, a little more loopy and fun. Like kicking the guy out of the plane. That was fun. Later he has a comment about never being wrong twice in the same day. I don't know if this is a little more of Jack Ryder's personality from this era coming out. I, I don't rightly know what sort of that change in his personality was, but I liked this characterization. And then this one, Mr. X, is back leading the team, and now he's in a cool hover glider chair. He's masterminding the team, coordinating the efforts, and all that works. And it did take a team effort to destroy Fin Fang Flame. Each one had a role to fill in the plan, where their specific powers were needed. Because even though this is an amalgam book, which to me have their own set of rules, their own expectations, at least, again, for me as a reader, it is still a comic book story. And Christopher Priest can write a pretty good comic story. I do want to make a comment about the character of Amazon, a straightforward amalgam of Wonder Woman and Storm. I picked up the Amazon book a few months ago and read it, and talked about it on a recent comics reading journal. And that was really weird in the sense of it being a decent comic book story. It was Burn at Austin. How bad could it have been? But it was such a misfit with the rest of the amalgam verse. No humor at all, and no amalgams beyond the title character. It was just a strange read in the context of books like this, or Spider Boy, or whatever else there was. It was just Again, a strange read. I commented on that other episode that it was like Burn and Austin didn't get the memo of what this event was really about. Well, Christopher Priest got the memo, as did Wade and Gerard Jones before. The verdicts, plural, on JLX and JLX Unleashed. Like I was just getting at, these are good comic book stories, and also good amalgam stories. In both cases, the battles are good. There are epic feels to both. The amalgamated characters are mostly pretty cool. And there are moments of fun and of adventure. These both are definitely quarter-bin steals. And there are only a few exceptions. Amazon stands out. And, sorry, Manuel Carmona, Assassins stands out. But apart from those, I've really enjoyed most of the amalgam books that I've read. That wraps up my coverage of JLX and JLX Unleashed, bringing episode 80 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. That also brings coverage of the Amalgam books to a close in terms of future Quarterbins, as far as I can see into the future. Along with the Ultraverse and the New Universe, they are off the Quarterbin list. But don't worry, there are plenty of other dead universes and defunct publishers that I'm pretty sure we'll be heading into down the road. In episode 81, we'll again be looking at two issues, the first half of a limited series, 
It'll be Vision and Scarlet Witch issues 1 and 2 from Marvel Comics covered it all the way back in November and December 1982. Just to make it clear, if you want to follow along, this is the first of their minis, the four issue, not the 12 issue one that came along a couple of years later. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.